Hello, fellow law nerds. Welcome to another episode of Boom Lawyered, a Rewire.news podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that wouldn't mind if there were a take a dragon, leave a dragon jar so we could fly one around just laying waste to the land. I'm Imani Gandhi. And I'm Jess Piclo. Rewire.news is dedicated to bringing you the best reproductive rights and social justice news, commentary, and analysis on the web, and the Team Legal Podcast is part of that mission. So a big thanks to our subscribers and a welcome to our new listeners. Today we're going to talk about how the Supreme Court's ruling in a relatively boring case about tax law and civil procedure demonstrates that contrary to popular belief and contrary to what justices may have claimed during their confirmation hearings... (coughs) Brad McBeer, conservative justices on the court don't really care about precedent and will gladly wipe out nearly 50 years of it in order to reach a result that they like. The case is called Franchise Board of California versus... What what Amani what Amani <laughs> Amani what, what, did you, what, what happened, you did what happened, not just fall asleep in the middle of saying the case name you did oh, not do but that the case is so but the case is so boring Jess and I don't wanna I know but we have to because it has serious implications for stuff we care about like Roe versus Wade if the court is willing to wipe out fifty years of precedent in a case about something like sovereign immunity we have to tell our listeners what that means for abortion rights okay fine you're right you're absolutely you're totally right. The case is called Franchise Board of California versus Amani. Amani, no. No. Okay, okay. Come on. Focus. It's called Franchise Franchise Board of California versus Hyatt. And it's about... Okay, I'm, I, I kid, I kid, I kid. It's about sovereign immunity and whether or not people can sue one state in the court of another state. We're going to briefly talk about the facts of that case. And you know, it's actually not really as boring as I made it out to be. But then we're going to talk about how the Supreme Court in that case just overruled 46 years of precedent and how that's a really big deal. We're also going to talk about how in his dissent in that case, Justice Stephen Breyer basically told us to be ready to wave goodbye to Roe versus Wade. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Roe. Bye-bye, Wade. Nice knowing you. So, Jess, where do we begin? Tell our listeners what this case is about. Well, we begin with the fact that the court in a 5-4 to four decision did away with 40 years of precedent to rule that states can't be sued by individuals in another state. So this case involves an investigation by the California Franchise Tax Board of an individual who had moved from California to Nevada. But Monday's opinion is about way more than a tax audit gone rogue that we're going to talk about. It's about the willingness of the conservative justices to just do away with precedent they don't agree with. And that's exactly the warning that Justice Stephen Breyer made in his dissent in the case, warning basically anyone who would listen that the Roberts Court is poised to reverse all sorts of precedent, including Roe versus Wade. Despite the relatively boring subject matter, tax law, civil procedure, sovereign immunity, the case is actually really important because of what Justice Clarence Thomas does in the case. And that is essentially lay out a roadmap that the court can use to strike down whatever cases they don't like. So here's what he said in the case. He announced that, quote, stare decisis is not an inexorable command. He also said that a decision to overturn precedent must consider certain factors, including, quote, 
the quality of the decision's reasoning, its consistency with related decisions, legal developments since the decision, and reliance on the decision. So I count one, two, three, four little prongs there and in the law we like to set up tests and I'm just gonna say that sounds like a test to me does it sound like a test to you sounds like it smells like a test and it walks like a test and it talks like a test it's gotta be a test I mean that exactly sounds like the kind of test that the conservatives are going to use to justify overturning precedent not just in this case but in future cases Absolutely. But first, let me just give you a little recap of what this case is actually about so that you'll understand what's going on. So the case is about a Nevada man named Gilbert Hyatt, who was basically tired of being harassed by this anti-Semitic tax auditor from California whose name was Sheila Cox. So the tax board in California claimed that he had lied on his taxes in order to avoid paying California income taxes. And this tax auditor, Sheila Cox, vowed that she was going to, quote, get that Jew bastard. What? I'm assuming she's a Trump supporter, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) And started harassing Gilbert Hyatt, so much so that she enlisted estranged members of his family, his ex-wife, to investigate him so that she could tie him up and yoke him up on these tax audit charges. So Hyatt got fed up and sued the California Tax Board in Nevada State Court. Now, under a 1979 case called Nevada versus Hall, suing California in Nevada was something that he could do. So he did, and he won. The California Tax Board then appealed to the Supreme Court, but at that time, you know, Scalia had just taken his permanent dirt nap, the court was a 4-4 split, <laughs> so the issue of whether this case, Nevada versus Hall, should be overturned was basically up in the air, four to four. What were we going to do? But then what happened after that, Jess? After Scalia died, what happened? Hmm. Let's see. Two things. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Bingo. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh joined the court. So the California tax board was like, hey, we think we're going to try our shot again. And so they appealed again. This time, Clarence Thomas gave the tax board exactly what it wanted. A ruling that states have sovereign immunity from private lawsuits brought in courts of other states. Meaning you cannot, you live in Colorado, right? Mm -hmm. You're harmed by a tax board in Louisiana. Uh You want to sue Louisiana in Colorado. You can't do that anymore. Not anymore. You used to be able to. But now you can't. And so Gilbert Hyatt basically was screwed. The tax board shenanigans and that anti-Semitic tax auditor and all of her shenanigans all would go unpunished. All of that harassment just didn't matter. So a couple of reactions. One, that tax stuff is bananas. Like you don't get a really like off the wall kind of audit situation, like a revenge audit with a whole host of like anti-Semitism thrown into it. Like... That's just quite a story. But beyond that, like this is a, and it's it's a terrible outcome, but it's also a situation that's like not going to come up a lot, is it? You know, I mean, right. people are, you know, harmed by other states, but the this isn't a situation that's like, you know, one that the court needed to address. It is one that was a campaign to address. And very specifically, folks saw that they had numbers on the court and so they went with it. And we've seen this before, right? Like we have a we've have a playbook. We've talked about this on the show before with um the Janice decision and Justice Alito and him basically telegraphing to conservative interest groups, hey, 
you have a friend on the court here when it comes to union busting. Give me a really good case to do it. And this case smacks of Janice and that conservative drive to overturn precedent that it that they don't agree with on an ideological basis. So what we gave you was actually Uh, It turned out to be a pretty interesting case, not as boring as I implied in the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the snoring was a little overdramatic. The snoring was a bit theatrical, I'll admit it. Um, The tax audit revenge is kind of juicy and sexy, but we don't really care that much about taxes here at Boom Lawyered. No. You know, so why does that matter to our listeners? Why does this case matter for reproductive rights enthusiasts? Because of Justice Breyer's dissent in this case and what he said and the sort of telegraphed warning um, or not even really telegraphed warning, just the the warning that Roe versus Wade just straight up like it's bad coming from him. So let's talk about it. First of all, some context. Um, We love Justice Breyer on this show, right? He's not one for making alarmist statements. He's our like, you know, he's the data nerd. We talk about him as the guy who just loves information and gives like meaty, well-reasoned, well-thought-out um, opinions, even if they're 400 pages sometimes, right? Like, they can be the longest in the world to read. But he's not one to just go screaming, the sky is falling, abortion rights are on the ropes. That's just, that's not his jam, but that's what he did here. So, and it's also a textbook example of taking conservatives at their word and showing that it's bullshit. So, Let's walk through it. His dissent is methodical. He walks through the last 40 years of sovereign immunity law that's at issue here, and he really takes the majority to task on each of those factors that Thomas laid out that we talked about in overturning Hall. So let's talk about it a little bit. Um, One, the quality of the majority's reasoning. Breyer here just straight up says there is no quality in the reasoning. You don't like the precedent, and you have five votes for it, so you're going to overturn it. Like, he just lays waste to that. Um, Have there been any legal development since? You know, I mean, we talk about a lot of things on this show. It's largely, you know, repro and LGBTQ rights focused, but not always. And we haven't suggested that this idea of state sovereign immunity is one blowing up the courts, is it, Imani? Like, <laughs> not so much. Not at this all. is not like a hot pressing issue of our time. It took a campaign to get the outcome here, like you talked about. They tried and Scalia died on them and they didn't get it. So they waited again until they had the numbers. <laughs> they tried. And Scalia died. (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) But I mean, like that is that's a true statement. And so Breyer calls him out on that. And that is all before he even gets to like the crescendo of this dissent, which is the points he makes on stare decisis. And that's a doctrine that we've talked about on the show. What is stare decisis, Imani? Right, right. So stare decisis is Latin. You know how we lawyers love our Latin phrases. Love it. And it's Latin for to stand by things. And it's basically just the doctrine of precedent, meaning you stand by the shit that you've already said and the stuff that you've already made rulings on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an important doctrine. Judges are usually bound to follow precedent, usually, because we like the law to be consistent and we like consistent law to lead to judicial outcomes that are predictable. And when judicial outcomes are predictable, that leads to less litigation because people know what they're getting into before they file lawsuits instead of having this nebulous law where no one knows what the fuck is going on. So people are filing lawsuits by the dozen just to get clarification on what the law is. 
Absolutely. And I mean, it's really important. I think it's worth stating explicitly that the legal, you know, the law is a conservative institution, not just ideologically, but in the sense that it's designed to uphold the status quo. It's not supposed to change quickly. That kind of chaos is not good for society. And so that's sort of this broad principle. And it's really, you know, I mean, it's a foundational one in terms of of how courts and, and the law operates. And so what Justice Breyer does in his dissent is take that principle and and really lay it out and says specifically that stare decisis dictate that the court not overrule Hall, which is exactly what they did. And to sort of put the cherry on top of that Sunday, he cites Planned Parenthood versus Casey for that proposition. And this is a really big deal. It's so big it deserves like a couple step walkthrough. So first, let's talk about what Breyer actually said. I'm going to read it because, Lawners, it's a big deal. So here's what it is. It is one thing to overrule a case when it defies practical workability, when related principles of law have so far developed as to have left the old rule no more than a remnant of abandoned doctrine, or when facts have so changed or come to be seen so differently as to have robbed the old rule of significant application or justification. That's a cite from Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Breyer continues, It is far more dangerous to overrule a decision only because five members of a later court come to agree with earlier dissenters on a difficult legal question. Today's decision can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next. That's like a dissent Hmm. mic drop, Amani. It is. And it's like, I wonder what cases he was thinking about. Could it be Roe? Could it be Wade? I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. Precedent, obviously, can be overturned and should be overturned under certain circumstances, Mm -hmm. right? We've had cases that warranted reversal. Plessy versus Ferguson, Dred Scott versus Sanford, Mm -hmm. Korematsu. These are cases that were stripping people of their human rights. Precedent is not to be ignored simply because the court disagrees with the case law. So can you explain when it's appropriate to overrule precedent as opposed to what we're saying now, which is leave Roe v. Wade the fuck alone? (laughs) Right. Well, Breyer does this exactly in in his dissent, and I'm grateful for him for it because he talks about this as the difference between something being legally wrong, which is where we can show harm, right? So think of those cases that you just identified, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson. We can show real harm from that legal doctrine, right? Separate but equal is unconstitutional bullshit. Like, we can show harm from that. Um, You know, in this California tax case, there was no harm in letting states be sued by individuals in other states unless you think the harm is government accountability, right? So, like, that's that's not there. So there's not a showing of harm versus just the court disagreeing, which, you know, Breyer said, hey, we don't have harm. We don't have evidence, right? He's the data guy. He's the court's, like, information nerd. We don't have evidence to suggest that there has been bad um, effects from the precedent of Hall. It hasn't created a whole bunch of bad things happening in people's lives or even in state management. What you have are five people who disagree with it on principle and now find themselves in the majority and they're going to take advantage of it. Right. Okay. that's exactly what we have. And so can you talk a little bit about like why it's a big deal that Breyer wrote this dissent? Right. Because he's the like you said, he's the data nerd. He's the data nerd who gave us whole woman's health versus Hellerstedt, which is this one of the most landmark abortion rights decisions in the last, what, 20, 30 years? Yeah. At least pro I would say pro pro choice because Gonzalez was, you know, 
Yeah. Moving on. Why was this so important? (laughs) Let's not talk about Gonzalez. We'll go down a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. I mean, you know, we do a lot of uh, tea leaf reading when it comes to the Supreme Court. And Justice Breyer had a whole host of cases that he could have cited for the proposition that just willy-nilly overturning precedent is bad. But he chose Casey, and I have to believe he chose Casey for a reason. Okay, you mentioned that he authored the last big abortion rights win um, a couple years ago in Holman's Health versus Heller said that's that's important um that informs his decision of what he's of the citation that he makes here but also there are three abortion rights petitions right now three one two three pending before the supreme court (laughs) they could decide to take one two maybe all three of them right now and that's that's just abortion. Then there's the Oregon Cakes case that we've talked about, where there is a direct ask in that case to overturn precedent on religious freedom. So this is not a hypothetical warning. This is not Breyer engaging in some sort of intellectual exercise. This is him issuing the call from inside the House. Absolutely. And, you know, we have to sort of step back and remind our listeners of all the times that we said that this this abortion rights issue is going to come down to whether or not Chief John Roberts believes in the legitimacy of the court, believes that stare decisis is a thing that should be adhered to. And we know sure as shit that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh don't care about precedent. So... You know, we saw it in Janice, for example, in Janice, the union busting case. You should go back and listen to the episode we did on that. They overruled 40 years of precedent in Janice. We've got Trinity Lutheran, which was a case about whether or not the government could give a church funds in order to repave its playground or something to that, of, of that nature. And it essentially just, you know, blew a hole through the establishment clause. We have evidence that there are conservatives on this court who just don't care about precedent. So... The fact that now it's all in Robert's hands, now that Kennedy's retired, is a little bit frightening. Yeah, that makes me real sweaty. Yeah, me too. Because it's not like Roberts has shown a whole, and he, he doesn't have a great history of respecting precedent himself, and which is, again, why I think that, you know, Breyer's dissent and his per- particularly the citation to Casey and then saying, I wonder which case is next, is something that we need to, um, we really need to pay attention to. So, you know, but I... I've already heard it in the conversation around it, and I just want to like put this to bed once and for all. Amani, can we really extrapolate that this is an attack on Roe versus Wade from a tax case, from sovereign immunity? I mean, am I being hysterical? You are not being hysterical. You can absolutely extrapolate that this is an attack on Roe. I mean, what Thomas does in this decision is lay the groundwork for rolling back civil and human rights in a wide variety of contexts. Abortion is one of those contexts. I mean, just think about it. Conservative justices have long thought that the reasoning in Roe is bad, right? And they've been teeing up cases, hoping to get the right case before the court Mm -hmm. so that the court can overturn Roe. And that's one of the factors that Thomas lists in this Hyatt case, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not the reasoning is bad. So let's look at what Alabama has done this week, right? Alabama just passed this total abortion ban that criminalizes abortion. There's a 99-year jail penalty for people who perform abortion. It's huge. It's the most restrictive bananas ban since Roe v. Wade. Bananas ban is definitely it. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a bananas ban since uh, the court issued its ruling on Roe v. Wade. And so lawmakers, especially, uh-huh. you know, Governor Kay Ivey of Alabama, has specifically said that this ban is intended to challenge Roe. Mm-hmm. And we know that Republicans have opposition to Roe as a litmus test for being a federal judge, which is why you get these conservative judges popping in on their confirmation hearings talking about, hey, man, I just called balls and strikes. It's no big deal. Roe was settled law. It's precedent. I respect precedent. Uh-huh. No, you don't. Don't tell me you respect precedent when you don't. And another thing, Attorney General (laughs) Bill Barr is on record as opposing Roe. So, you know, this whole idea that, oh, yeah, Roe is settled law as precedent is nonsense. But, you know, it's not just abortion, is it, Jess? It's it's other areas like contraception, for example. Can you talk a little bit about how that's now on the table? Yeah, yeah. I just had a thought, though, when as you were saying that, that we're talking about, you know, all of this is Breyer um, signaling either subtly or not subtly, um, uh, you know, the danger of Roe. But as you're going through and walking, you know, talking about Alabama and this what is clearly a campaign to get a case before the court, you know, there's no reason to not read this as Thomas signaling to the anti-choice crowd also that, hey, we are open for business on this issue, too. So like hearing those right. two things in conversation with one another made me a a whole new level of sweaty now. <laughs> but contraception, because we do go from abortion to contraception in this case law. And if we are talking about uh, precedent being suddenly unsettled in one area, we have to talk about it being uh, suddenly unsettled in another area. And that's Griswold versus Connecticut, right? So Griswold versus Connecticut is the case that gives us the penumbra of rights that has been the butt of jokes for a while, right? This um, idea that conservatives like to talk about, oh, the like mystical web of privacy rights that like, right? (laughs) Um, Pull a little from here and there. Um, But this is exactly the kind of intellectual framing that the court could construe it as a one of those low quality decisions warranting reversal that Thomas talks about. So what is those penumbra of rights? Griswold found a right to privacy that exists in the aggregation of the first, third, fourth, ninth, and 14th amendments. That's a lot of amendments. A lot of amendments, but we deserve a lot of privacy, Imani. <laughs> we do. That is true. I would like the government to get the hell out of my uterus. Please, uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, the court in Griswold said that when viewed collectively, those constitutional rights create the zone of constitutional authority that demonstrates the right to individual privacy is inherent. We all have it. The government can't come in and just invade it however it wants. Um, And that the court said that the First Amendment has a penumbra or an implication that privacy is protected in particular. And people have been dragging the court, dragging the court for this penumbra business for decades, right? So that is sort of like teed up for them um, in terms of uh, something, you know, sort of a big juicy nugget that Thomas and the other conservatives could grab hold of. Right. And we also have to talk about the fact that maybe there are new legal developments in the area of contraception. Right. In the wake of conservatives trying to pretend that birth control is abortion, I mean, that's that's a problem, too, when it comes to the the efficacy, the continuing efficacy of Griswold v. Connecticut. Absolutely. You are like reading my mind. I was just going to say that. So we have that like legal silo. And then we also have this political silo, which is conservatives waging their war on contraception. And like you said, sort of, you know, construing it and conflating it with abortion. And, um, you know, there are you know, now new challenges to the safety and efficacy of hormonal contraception coming out this, you know, along this whole idea of abortion reversal, all this junk science that is perpetrated on the right around um, abortion and contraception 
contraception, I can totally see the conservatives using that as an argument to say, look, we have information. We it's it's not the same. We don't know the same things about contraception uh, in 1965 that we do now. And so we have new ground and new reason to roll back rights based on that. I mean, you can sort of see these things starting to cook up, can't you? We can see them percolating in other areas, too. Like this week, it's the 65th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, which is a landmark decision Mm -hmm. that basically says separate but equal is bullshit. I remember this week, just you and I were like, yeah, we need to reread that case so we can familiarize ourselves. I haven't read it in a while. So, you know, I sat down I made myself a nice cup of tea. I was ready to like dig in for like a nice long read. (laughs) Right. And the decision's like a hot seven pages. I mean, it is like, it is... Separate but equal educational Mm -hmm. facilities is bullshit. It's unconstitutional. It violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Boom, that's it. No nonsense. But yet we have almost two dozen nominees for federal courts that have refused to say that Brown was rightfully decided. So now it looks like the right to go to unsegregated schools is on the line. It is, is, like you said, the seven-page decision. Like, it's not hard to say, this is fine. Like, it's not... there, And so... When we talk about judges having an ideological opposition to Roe versus Wade, that's something that's come up in conversation all the time. We have judges with an ideological opposition to Brown versus Board of Education now. Almost two dozen of them. I'm sorry. Continue. Right. Right. Including the fucking Jeffrey Rosen, who for the de- who's the deputy AG and the dude who is in charge of the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. How can you oppose Brown v. Board of Ed and be in charge of the Civil Rights Division of the J- DOJ? Your job is to enforce civil rights laws. Thank you. There's not a single legitimate legal reason to oppose Brown. Not one. The only one is you're a racist shithead. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's it. But it's not just education, right? Let's talk about same-sex marriage. People keep people think same-sex marriage is safe, and it's not. Just today in the news, there's this article that the Trump administration is, quote, de-recognizing the children of same-sex couples, stripping their stripping citizenship from them because why exactly? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't even know. We have to talk about same-sex marriage. This was one of the areas as soon as Ke- as soon as Justice Kennedy retired that we said, um, this is a problem. Same-sex marriage rights are absolutely absolutely on the line. And, you know, this is sort of that classic, the court giveth and the court taketh away here, right? Um, Now, none of the factors that Thomas has listed in that test should seem applicable here, right? We don't have any new legal developments regarding same-sex marriage. Um, There's been a lot of reliance on the decision. Um, It has not uh, created chaos. You know, folks aren't like, um, trying to, well, I mean, marry their laptops. That was one of the like areas that, that you know, folks said would happen or, you know, it's just, it's not. I want to marry my laptop. I mean, you know, it beats, no, I won't even go there. I won't even go. Oh, uh, just, just my iPad Pro, at least not even my <laughs> iPad Pro. <laughs> I'm sorry, continue. There's a conservative litigator who may be able to help you. So. <laughs> but, you know, so, but I mean, in many ways, one of the like great successes of the Obergefell v. Hodges decision is just how goddamn normal it is and how life went on in terms of like none of the chaos that conservatives predicted has fallen. But I mean, I thought that all heterosexual couples were going to immediately get divorced. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's what I, I'd heard, that it was just going to rock the foundation of marriage to its core. 
but it hasn't. There are no new legal developments. So leave Obergefell alone. If I have to go, I'll leave Brittany alone on this shit. <laughs> leave Obergefell alone. <laughs> right? But they won't. And I mean, they haven't since the ink was dry in the opinion, and they're really starting to ramp that up. So we're seeing, you know, and again, never underestimate the power of conservatives to make shit up to suit their agenda. So we're seeing a new wave this just this month of pseudoscience uh, released from the right, arguing again that same-sex parenting causes harm to kids, and this time they can really prove it. Like, pro- the Prop 8 trial had these fools on the stand, which was one of the things that I thought was, like, the best thing for marriage equality ever, is just put them on the stand and make them defend their work, and they couldn't. And so they're trying again, and I would not at all put it past the court to buy it a second time around. Ugh. Courts love junk science. Legislators love junk science, actually, and courts love just deferring to legislators. I mean, that's the fucking problem. But so oh, I'm a little sweaty and angry, and I need to blame someone for this, Amani. Who can uh, I blame? I mean, first of all, you can blame anyone who listens to these conservative justices talk about calling balls and strikes as if that's all they do. Hey, man, I'm just here. I'm just a, I'm just a guy. I'm just a simple man cut from simple cloth. And I just follow the rules, yo. There's a law and there's a case and that's the law and that's the case. And that's how it is. Crap. That's crap. None of that is true. These these judges have no problem overruling precedent they don't like. Another person we can blame? Susan goddamn Collins. Because she's either hella gullible or just straight up malevolent. She's gullible if she really believes this nonsense about, hey, balls and strike. Because that's my Susan Collins impression. <laughs> You know, she's either, you know, I'm going to request a Susan Collins impression all it's the good. time. I'm Susan Collins. Meh, 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 meh. Brett Kavanaugh, pinky swore to me that he would respect precedent. Meh, 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 meh. I mean, it's like, give me a fucking break, lady. I just am seeing Susan Collins as Beaker from the Muppets now. <laughs> And, you know, and if she's not the most gullible woman on the planet, then she's malevolent because she's been holding herself out as a sensible pro-choice Republican. And she's not. She's just a liar. And, and, and Chuck Grassley and Mitch McConnell. I'm sorry. I'm still mad. I've been mad at I have been mad at Chuck Grassley and Mitch McConnell for going on ten goddamn years now. Yes, you have. So let it all out. Oh, okay. I'm gonna have a moment. Thank you, dear listeners, for granting me this space and holding it while I release my frustration (laughs) about Chuck Grassley and Mitch McConnell, who collectively share so much of the blame of this takeover of the Republican courts or the federal courts. We can't even talk about rational conservatives on the other side for For the last 10 years, they were successful in stymieing as many of President Obama's nominees as they could and then putting on hyperspeed ridiculously unqualified nominees, um, folks who the American Bar Association is like, yeah, no, would never work with that guy, Um, (laughs) you know, Um, and I mean, from tip to top, all of it just is is them. And so to the extent that we are. Mad at Susan Collins. I am also so mad at Chuck Grassley and Mitch McConnell. Yeah. 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 When you said tip to top, the first thing that came into my head was nuts to butts. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. From nuts to butts, Chuck Grassley and Mitch McConnell are out there. Oh, God. But let's 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 talk about something a little bit more positive because I'm sure. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
Oh, fuck those Let's guys. Let's give our Sorry. listeners who I'm sure right now would like to have something, some kind of action item, what they can yeah. do. What can folks do if they are frustrated about the state of reproductive rights in their own state? Um, release your primordial scream, <laughs> you know, do what you right. need to do. Yell at Chuck Rassley. Sound your barbaric um, yop. But, <laughs> <laughs> but go and, and proactively support abortion providers and abortion funds, um, particularly in these states. There are folks who are at this right this moment making sure that people who need care and access to it can. Um, they are on the front lines and they need our support. So support them in any way you can. And I would just like to add that one of the ways that you can support these grassroots organizers and the states that are struggling against these regressive laws is not by shit-talking the states. Because honestly saying, oh, well, you shouldn't be living in Alabama anyway, or oh, if you live in Alabama, you deserve it. There are really die-hard progressive activists that are working their butts off in states like Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Ohio. They are trying, and they need support, if not monetary support, because you don't have that wherewithal right now, Moral support, Twitter support, mm-hmm. you know, just absolutely don't call these states flyover states because whatever's happening in those states, it could happen in your state. And that's and that's the case if you're living in California, if you're living in Oregon, absolutely. if you're living in New York. These are states that are traditionally very staunchly pro-choice. This shit can happen anywhere and it is getting faster and more furious Fast and the Furious, abortion. They should do that movie. (laughs) Fast and Furious, abortion law. I mean, so just really think about what you're saying and how you're saying it and support the people who are working to protect choice. That's all I got, really. That's plenty. All right. So we're going to wrap that up for today. If you want to continue this conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Angry Black Lady. You can follow Jess on Twitter at Hegemommy, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. And you can follow Rewire.News at Rewire underscore news. And you can, and you should, join us on Facebook. Look for Boom Lawyered, answer the question, and we'll let you right in. Party time in that group. And aside from that, we're just going to have to see you on the tubes, folks. Stay stay classy, stay sassy, stay angry, but also, you know, take care of yourself because it's a long it's going to be a long haul. Yeah, take good care. We'll see you on the tubes. Boom Lawyered is created and hosted by Jessica Mason Piclo and Imani Gandhi. This episode was produced by Mark Folletti, who is also our executive producer, and the Rewire.news editor in chief is Jody Jacobson. 